Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and once again, I'm joined by Cam Maitland and Alicia Fletcher, and this is the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. It's kind of weird how different things get a day in which to celebrate their existence. What do I mean by that? Well, get ready to mark your calendars. We have National I Love Horses Day, which is July 15th, National Penguin Awareness Day, January 20th. There's National Days for Brownies, Blondie Brownies, and Cream Cheese Brownies, National Do a Grouch a Favor Day, February 16th, and my personal favorite, April 4th's Walk Around Things Day. These are obviously pretty silly, but uh, 1992 as a whole was dubbed as the Year of Women in the U.S. There were monumental shifts, uh, not just in government, but also in film. Cam, you know about this. Sure, yeah. Uh, If you want, technically the official (laughs) Year of Women was 1975, and I think that this is a bit of a uh, cute reference uh, partially due to the second wave feminist movement. But as you say, the reason why people really call 1992 the year of women is the fact that, and this is uh, depressing, Woo! four women senators <laughs> won their electoral race. Uh, four Democratic women, uh, including people you know, probably like Diane Feinstein and Barbara Boxer. But that was... Mm-hmm a wave at the time (laughs) at the time that constituted a wave yeah so it seemed like this big uh change in government um also like why did it happen would you say uh i think it's probably because in 1991 uh to a lot of people credit it to Mm -hmm. uh two famous sex criminals uh getting high powered uh jobs uh namely clarence thomas uh joining the supreme court and uh william jefferson clinton uh becoming president of the united states Two men who are dogged by sexual harassment uh, claims. But they went on uh, Arsenio Hall and wore sunglasses and played the saxophone. So they were just like you. Sure. They're totally fine. Um, also, it's worth saying that p- people credit part of this to a fact that uh, a lot of people uh, retired, mm. partially due to the fact that the Reagan government had gone on so long uh, that, that that about 40 plus uh Republicans retired and 240 members of Congress were caught up in a scandal, which I believe uh, went over both sides of Congress, uh, where they'd overdrawn their bank accounts, (laughs) thus personally causing the country debt. (laughs) Uh, So it's kind of a weird circumstance that allowed these women to come in. But obviously that was one thing. And also women, especially after the famous the Clarence Thomas hearings, was an all-white, all-male jury uh, taking Anita Hill's testimony. Uh, and that rightfully radicalized a lot of women to say the the Senate Judiciary Committee should not be all men. Uh, so a lot of existing senators started moving uh, towards that as well. Uh, on the film side, 
uh, everybody kind of loved this idea, <laughs> whether or not how real it was, <laughs> as you can guess, uh, considering Clarence Thomas is still a part of the Supreme <laughs> Court and Bill Clinton uh, had two terms. It, the film industry felt like they wanted to capitalize. So uh, the 65th Academy Awards were uh, Oscars celebrates women in the movie. Uh, and uh, <laughs> they went out of their way to uh, gather essentially every living uh, winner for a photo of 67 women. Uh, you also have to keep in mind 67 that... 67 women? Yeah. I mean, I think to be fair... Hey, at least it wasn't 69, I don't think they gathered... <laughs> yeah. I don't think they gathered every living winner <laughs> to, to their credit, uh, but they tried. Um, but, uh, yeah. And, and the Oscar was very excited. You have to remember in 1991, Kelly Curie uh, won for Thelma and Louise. Uh, Gina Davis says that you know, post Thelma and Louise, there was this massive buzz of like, everything's changed. We love women's stories now. And then Gina Davis said she wandered around Hollywood being like, uh, hello. <laughs> like, <laughs> that Davis. that just immediately uh, disappeared. And people also point out that this celebration of Oscars in the movie, uh, it took 17 years for a woman to win Best Director. Uh, and uh, we're still waiting <laughs> after that 17 years, too. The Hollywood Reporter was very interested in this year and 25 years later uh, caught up with people to ask how different, like essentially in the wake of Me Too, stuff like that, how do you feel about this year of women? And, and yeah, the women, a lot of the women say that this was a weird joke uh, <laughs> that like it seemed kind of great at the time and it was exciting, but so little change happened. And an interesting thing, I can't remember who said it, but one of the women is quoted as saying, uh, Nobody talked to each other. They're like, they got those 67 women in the room together. But at the time you were so laser focused on just kind of keeping what you had. Yeah. That they said that there wasn't the networks. And that's, Faye Dunaway also actually says that like, at the time, I mean, she was Faye Dunaway. She was huge. She, like, she should have been the equivalent of Warren Beatty. But she said to produce anything was impossible. And she would try constantly to produce stuff. And she said there was no point going to studios. Women could only really produce things independently. So that that's kind of a crock too. Um, and it, interestingly, a lot of the women they interview when they're like, do you feel like things are different with me too? Some of them say yes. And some of them are like, no, it's going to, some be of the them same. are like, they're like, I'm excited that young people are excited, but mm -hmm. Uh, like I've, they're like I lived through the seventies. I lived through this nineteen ninety two. This is just another thing, and it's like yeah. wow, that is <laughs> grim. But yeah. at the same time, nineteen ninety two was excited about women, and, and like I say, like uh, Hollywood said, and it, you see it, you see this bump in women, and whether it was Thelma and Louise, whether it was uh, Diane Feinstein getting a senatorial seat, who knows? Uh, there was this excitement there. Well, we're also going to talk about this in the second half of this episode because there was a similar aura around black filmmakers at the mm -hmm. time as well, and that's that's the second half, but. But for this half, we're going to focus on a couple more independent films made by women. These ones, less teen pregnancy, more uh, really action-driven films <laughs> and comedies. Yeah. They're pretty fun. Both of them involved guns, so mm -hmm. that's really exciting. And that having been said... Would you lend a twitchy adult man named Skippy a gun that's registered in your name when he refuses to tell you what he's going to do with it? Because that seems like a pretty bad decision, I, right? I would not, Becky. 
I would, <laughs> you would I not. Would not. That is your th- yeah, I think it's I think it's foolish. But that's exactly the choice that uh, Diane Lane makes in the film My New Gun. It's the debut film from writer-director Stacey Cochran. Uh, she's someone who's made a name for herself as a true indie filmmaker. But when they Hollywood bought it, they had no idea what to do with it. So they marketed it as this like wacky comedy. But it's not. It's something totally different. How did you find out about this movie? This thing is <laughs> uh, insane. Yeah, I I mean, part of our job researching, we're just trying to find interesting films, uh, films that stick out. And one thing I love doing is checking out uh, any award show that has a first feature award. Mm -hmm. So this film was nominated for the Independent uh, Spirit Awards uh, Best First Feature. And we're very interested in also looking at women directors, directors of color, directors who might not be as recognized. And this film is very, it's very well reviewed. It's a very unusual uh, film by a woman director whose name I think a lot of people don't know. Stacey yeah, Cochran I is didn't not, know her name. not rolling off a lot of people's lips, but she's had a career. Uh, and, and this film was kind of a phenomenon at its time. If you look, most reviews are like, check it out. But it's a, yeah, it's a completely unusual film uh yeah, the more how you, dig would you it, even market this to like a large audience like it's so yeah. unusual i think the thing is it was a little early on the swing for the kind of gen x ironic comedy mm. um it's it's a you know it's a takedown of suburbia which uh the late 80s early 90s loved i, I a lot of people compare it as like a comedy leaning blue velvet which mm. i agree with because the weird thing is it also turns into a dark weird story towards the end the whole thing is quite dark but it, it has all these like we say there's it stars diane lane uh we'll probably get into it a little deeper james lagrosse who's in two of the movies we're talking about who was huge at the time uh coming off of drugstore cowboy and another interesting thing that immediately kind of got me interested is the fact that it's produced uh by irs media which is a spin-off of the record company irs records which people may know, they were big on like college rock and new wave. Uh, they had bands like uh, REM, the Go Go's, uh, Fine Young Cannibals. Uh, they got big enough at the time to ride this indie film wave. Uh, in 1992, they produced along with this uh, "Shakes the Clown," Bobcat Goldthwait's film. Oh wow! And uh, Carl Franklin's "One False Move." Uh, again, like we say, the people were interested in black directors. It's a film written by Billy Bob Thornton. So it's mm-hmm. kind of this. They made these bunch of films, but they're part of this boom of boutique distributors, which essentially existed only from like eighty nine to ninety one. A really mini <laughs> boom. But there's these <laughs> these distributors that you've probably never heard of, but that produced these films that were very big at the time. Mm-hmm. So like if I say things like Aries films, Triton films, uh Cabriolet Pictures, <laughs> uh Grey Cat films, like these are things that you don't hear of. There there are places like Strand releasing first look October films that were much bigger. But those Names, which seem to mean nothing to you, produced stuff like In the Soup, produced award-winning films, produced big films that went on to huge things that may even be known as a part of bigger collections. I think IRS was bought out by Sony uh, when it folded. It it folded like two years later. Immediately, Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's this kind of interesting moment where there was this money, there were these opportunities, and people could make their money back, honestly, on video sales or, or short runs theatrically. I can't help but wonder if you would have seen 
this work better if streaming was more of a thing? Because you have to have so much physical media mm-hmm. and you have to produce an actual product at that time, like VHS or DVD or whatever, and then mm-hmm. also the theatrical release, that if you didn't have that, if you were just selling the direct like digital copy to streaming services or whatever, that would have been a saving grace for these smaller corporations. Yep. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I just you, don't. Yeah. I don't know what you make. <laughs> the thing I don't know is I don't know what you make off a streaming movie. The truth is, you, you, when you make a VHS, you make your ten bucks back or whatever. You know, yeah. it's the same as pressing a record, right? Like records still make money because you invest a certain amount and it's a physical thing, and nobody can deny that a record costs, you know, twenty five bucks. That's me being a Lucille Bluth. I have no idea how much a record costs. <laughs> how much could it possibly cost? Ten yeah. dollars. Yeah. Uh, but but I think that the physical media always had that price tag, and also this we're like. Theaters closed down a lot yeah. since 1992. Mm. Um, there were tons of theaters. So if you went to, you know, uh, let's say Edmonton, where Becky and I grew up, there were, think of when we were kids, there was a million so movie theaters. theaters. Edmonton had yeah. so many movie theaters. Yeah. I'm sure My New Gun came through. It was the era of like, not just like city theaters, but like neighborhood. Like you could, oh, every yeah. six blocks had a theater. Like that's how Toronto was set up as well. Like Little Italy yeah. had its theater. There were two theaters in Little Italy. There were two theaters on Roncesvalles. Like you had so much mm. choice. I don't think any mall in Edmonton did not have a movie theater in it. That is true. They yes. all yeah. did. Yeah. E- even if they had to dig out the basement and put a <laughs> I often was, wonder how many basements still have a movie theater in it. Or a bowling alley. It's yeah. one of the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this film is, uh, like we've said, it's a bit of an oddity. Um, and tonally, it's it's a little strange. It is Stacey Cochran's debut film. And how she got to make it is actually really interesting. Uh, do either of you know this story? I do a bit. And, and correct me if you know anything deeper. Uh, she was a film student. Yes. She wrote My New Gun. Uh in film school. Mm-hmm. She had not yet completed film school. That is an, correct. An agent who I believe is Diane Lane's agent got his hands on it. At gave William it, Morris. Yeah, a William Morris agent. Uh, gave it to Diane Lane, introduced a film student who is still a student to Diane Lane, and the two of them kind of got the wheels spinning so fast that literally the minute she graduated film school, she started filming. May I film. ask a question? Mm-hmm. Of course. For film students who might be listening, how does one get their class project to be seen by William Morris? I believe their professor did it, didn't they? Like, I think he, their professor gave yeah. it. Mm. They like they liked it so much. So you go to a school that's good enough, that has the connections enough, that they would be like, "Hey, yeah. this is something really special," and they pass it along. Yeah. And this she went is to Columbia, okay. so and it's a callback yeah. too to the fact that a lot of those instructors were probably independent filmmakers who mm-hmm. had a few titles under their belt, but we don't know their names anymore. But they still had their connections. Okay, understood. Thank you. Yes. That's great. Yeah, but I mean, it's very unlikely. And and any review of this is also, I think there's a lot of people like, like honestly, uh, who we talked about before, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, they're, they are talked about as people who, out of the gate, as students, you could look at their films and yeah. go, oh, they know what they're doing. Like, the, the crazy thing about My New Gun is, like, if any other person right out of film school made a movie, it would not look like a professional film. This looks amazing. And this, looks like a yeah you wouldn't you might not even know that it's that independent to be honest it's it seems like a studio film yeah you want to know why because it was uh the cinematographer on it was ed lackman who's known for uh being the cinematographer for i'm not there for carol for far from heaven like wow. his he's, ta- whole, he's taught uh, guy yep uh 
but he's also early um, Sofia Coppola. He's the Virgin Suicides. When I so, when like, I saw his name on the credits, I thought it was a mistake. That's not <laughs> like, no, he showed up like a different Ed Lockman. Yeah. That's why it looks as good as it does, because she really lucked out with people who knew exactly what they were doing. I almost want to say it's like Sarah Pauly had a kind of a similar thing where she lucked out, where she had like such an incredible um, mentoring system to help her make her debut film. Totally. And I think it's also, again, credit to Diane Lane, who this is not. Diane Lane is pretty far in her career at this point, Mm -hmm. actually. Yeah, a lot of people called her career a little hit and miss, which I think is fair. But she's in stuff like Rumblefish, you know, Streets of Fire, The Outsiders. So she had pulled. Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. Can I just true, true, true. Yeah, very true. Uh, she is also a fascinating human being because I was like, Diane Lane's always one of those names that like it pops up here and there and she gets mm-hmm. a good role every now and then. And then you forget how long she's been around. She was on Broadway when she was six starring opposite Meryl Streep. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Her mother was a uh, was a model who also posed for Playboy. And there is quite the Johnny Carson uh, interview just after her 18th birthday where they're talking about whether or not she'll pose for Playboy. Boy. My mother was uh, Playmate of the Month, October 57. I'm very proud of her for that. <laughs> it was at that time. I mean, you know, Isn't it was that... a lot, you know. Did you realize it at that time when you were... Well, I was not even an idea at that point. Oh, I see. Very much. <laughs> of course, I just reestablished your 18 and 57. Right. She was only 19. <laughs> Would you do something like that? No. <laughs> Why not? Well, because you have to reveal quite a bit more at this point. Right. That's uh, one good reason. There's many other good reasons why I would choose not to do that. I don't have to. I mean, uh, mom wanted to get a lot of exposure and she did. It's awful. You forget. (laughs) Yeah, tell me about it. You forget how long she's actually been around for and how much. Yeah, exactly. How how well respected she was and how much pull she got to be able to get this made as fast as she did. And it's a very different role for her, too. Totally. I had a Diane Lane film festival planned before coronavirus. (laughs) I just want to say that it's one of the things. But it was all young Diane Lane, like when she was a child, because some of those films are so, so good. And uh I will always regret that. But I'm glad we're talking about this film because I would now actually, I liked this film enough to actually put it in a Diane Lane film festival. I mean, it's a super weird one. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, at the very least, it's probably, I mean, Streets of Fire will never be topped probably, <laughs> but it's pretty weird. Well, Alicia, why don't you walk us through a little bit of the plot of what things about? Because all we've said so far is, it's weird, there's a gun and a man named Skippy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Diane Lane is married to a piece of shit. Um, played. <laughs> played by real life piece of shit Stephen Collins, yeah. uh, hey! rotten jail, you pedophile. Played, yeah. played by a man who turned out to be a pedophile. Um, typical but awful marriage. They live in suburbia. Um, I guess there's like I don't even remember like a rash of break-ins. There's no real precipitation as to why he decides she needs to own a gun to protect it's herself. It's because the new friends, the his friends, yeah. they're both doctors. His friend's wife or soon-to-be wife gets her own gun. They're and this excited is my about new, their guns. This is one of my favorite parts of the movie is that he has his wife's name engraved on the gun for his yes. soon-to-be wife's name engraved on the gun, and her name is Myra, and so the gun just has this like beautiful Myra. pearl handle engraved with Myra, and I love that so much. I think it's such a great. Visual. I know very little about guns, but I will say that this was quite a beautiful, beautifully made gun. It's it's a nice gun. Yes. But um it's she's, a gun. she's very against it. She doesn't believe in guns. She's scared. He does kind of teach her to shoot it. And their across the street neighbor, who's a younger guy, this is where Skippy comes in, uh played by James LaGrosse. <laughs> he they're talking one day when they run into each other at the grocery store and she kind of mentions like I don't want the gun. I'm actually scared to have it in the house. Like she's confiding in him uh and he shows up and asks her one evening if he can borrow it. 
very strange uh, request. She says no, obviously, because it's a huge liability. And then he just like excuses himself to the upstairs washroom and steals it um, <laughs> with some sort of weird excuse. And it goes from there. There's a possibly I don't want to give away the ending because I actually think it's better to just know the beginning of the film. Yeah. There's a lot of complications that ensue as we figure out who Skippy is. He lives in a <laughs> he lives in a, a, a townhome that is entirely furnished by ping pong tables and arcades yeah. and very little Largely and bongos, abandoned. bongos, bongos, yeah. very little things, uh, very little implements to sit on. Uh, he's possibly, I mean, tied up in drugs. He's got this yeah. maybe fake mother who it turns out to be real. Um, and then it goes from there. She Her marriage falls apart, no surprise. Uh, her husband does get botulism, which I like seeing happen. <laughs> I like seeing happen to that particular actor. Yes, um, yes. They get divorced, and then it kind of, it goes from there. And it's uh, it reminds me, you know the Simpsons episode where Marge gets a gun? I actually think that might be a direct reference to this film, which I, I, I wouldn't didn't be realize, surprised. But I really liked this. I was quite surprised. I also, if, if it's not clear in this conversation prior— in, in I love Diane Lane. Like I, I, she's one of my favorite actresses. So I loved seeing a film that I really hadn't heard of. Um, it's a very there's at the beginning of the film is almost like Twin Peaks. There's an like almost a Twin Peaks soundtrack going on in the early part mm. of the film. Like it really is a critique on suburbia. And my favorite my favorite James Legros part who plays Skippy is somehow a conversation comes up that he should order a vegetable. And he's like, well, onion rings are vegetables. And I'm just like, that is totally what that guy is. The guy mm-hmm. who thinks that onion rings are a vegetable. As you were saying earlier, Cam, very much a 90s sensibility of absurdist humor. Mm-hmm. And that would really catch fire with like the Kevin Smith sort yes. of thing where it's like yes. dry in the commentary. This sits in exactly that vein. and uh, But I think it's smarter and not as profanity laden. And I mean, make it that jewel, but I really liked it. I thought it was super funny. It's kind of. Yeah. It's kinder for yeah. sure. Totally. And it's definitely like the kind of thing with the gun is while it upends her life, it also gives her this weird freedom because, yeah, she her marriage with Stephen Collins is terrible. She's like a Stepford wife at the start, kind of. She's brainwashed. She is obviously attracted to Skippy from the start. Well, he's super but, uh, hot. Doesn't, doesn't really know why. Yes. This super hot guy, James LaGrosse, who's in every movie in 1992, including singles and uh, whatever else. Um, but he was usually playing the skis bag, wasn't he? Like, it's very ooh, rare for him huh. to be playing like a, yeah, a good Yeah, I mean, dude. he's got that skeezy voice. He's but he's the flop. bag point break the year before. Sure. Yes. He's the, he's the floppy haired 90s uh, Gen X hunk that you <laughs> you are attracted to, even though he's skeezy. Well, but, there's a great, uh, a great quote quickly. He was dubbed the Brad Pitt of independent film. And uh, his response to that was, Brad's a handsome devil. It's better than being the Abe Vigoda of independent film. <laughs> yeah. so I'm like, that's clever. He's another guy like Diane Lane who has just worked. Mm-hmm. Like, he does great uh, and is great. And, and But he's a guy you kind of don't think about. But in 1992, they were very he's hard everywhere. thinking about him. Uh, he was the hottest thing that you could get. He, his facial hair, I know, changed in every film in 1992. Like, even between My New Gun and the one we're going to talk about that he's in next they really, I think, focused on manicuring his goatee to be very <laughs> emphatic, but also distinguish his characters. Because there is something very weird about the intensity of performance. Because, like, and I can see the Brad Pitt, especially for the 90s comparison, because mm-hmm. Brad Pitt had two modes, was the hunky, dumb guy who sort of swaggers and the angry, bug-eyed, pointing guy. Mm-hmm. Like, he, there really wasn't any any big difference there. But the facial hair and the long hair and whatever, and the cut, that was what would really shift around with him. So I can really see the comparison between the mm-hmm. two. It's that squirrely, manic sort of energy. And, 
a relatively attractive man's body. Totally. And I think he really sells the kind of satire, deadpan humor. That's another thing. And I think that they used him a lot in those 90s comedies, which I think is maybe a thing that people can have trouble with connecting. Mm-hmm. But it's like, because it, it's it's boom time comedy. So it's kind of weird to be like, these people have relatively comfortable and nice lives and they hate it so much. I know that that's it, it can be a hump to get over this idea that like, oh, God, my big house is so annoying and my, <laughs> my beautiful neighborhood. And it's all usually white people. So In you're fairness, also Cam, they're only two bedroom townhomes. And they're not detached. And he is a doctor. So what is he doing with his money? (laughs) And I will say a a fun fact that it's the same townhome. They both they they just redid the same house for Skippy's and Diane Lane's house uh, because they couldn't afford another. This is another thing I couldn't help but think about uh, losing it and uh, the idea of you're going to jump from uh, one terrible relationship into a <laughs> yes. relationship that's also deeply ill-advised. <laughs> yeah. so, and I don't think you're meant to really root for them to stay no. together. Like he is a he is a means of escape for the Diane Lane character. Yeah. She's nice to her, at least, because those, at least. those scenes with her husband berating her for oh, like... Yeah doing something so minor, you know, wrong, whether it's how she arranged a cheese plate or, like, who knows? Like, it's just nice to see kindness paid to her, even though this guy has stolen her gun and could potentially lead her to be <laughs> arrested. Yeah. His crony is Philip oh, Seymour Hoffman I in a blink-and-you'll-miss-it sort of role. I framed because I was like, is it him? Because it's 92, <laughs> so it's so early. I cannot believe it's his first that film this amazing that director in. in her first film is also directing Philip Seymour Hoffman in his first film. That's incredible oh. to me. I, I really recommend going back to early Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's a great bully in My Boyfriend's Back by Bob <laughs> Balaban. Uh, he, he's so one. He's just, he's the best. Who's better than Philip Seymour Hoffman? He's another man full mm-hmm. of intensity. And spoiler alert for 2007, mm-hmm. we're going to be covering one of his, one in my opinion, one of his best movies. I'm very excited about it so but I think the other thing I really love about this movie is I have discovered Mm -hmm. I have a thing for movie wedding dresses because (laughs) it's just such a costumer's dream because you can say so much about a character based on what they choose for their wedding dress and the wedding dress and the bridesmaids dresses that are chosen and it's a very specific moment that the the (laughs) bridesmaids dresses are also white and intended to look like mini versions of the wedding dress it just kills me because I was like at one point is was that like a trend in 1992 to make your bridesmaids no it's just she's she's bananas This woman has no taste. This this is a really wonderful, like, I think it's, you know, it's a trope to have a wedding scene in films. But in if I had to build a pantheon of like the funniest wedding sequences, this would be on there. This is this is the climax (laughs) of the film when she's the bridesmaid to her her friend who's getting married and everything's gone awry with the gun and other things that we aren't going to spoil. And it all comes to a head at the wedding with her husband present who's already dating a, a new woman. It's it's really great. Yeah, I feel it's like really what you're wonderful. saying. Yeah, it's like imagine all the David Lynch stuff is also happening at a wedding, and that's kind of the the comedic part is like <laughs> a David Lynch thriller is happening at this wedding. And I can totally see this is not a movie for everybody's sense of humor. Like like I said, when they tried to market yeah. this, they were like, it's a broad wacky comedy. So yeah, not everybody's gonna watch this and be the laugh a minute that Ivan. It's more of that like sort of amusing, like huh, that's really clever sort of funny. It's a it's a great. Sunday afternoon, maybe while you're knitting or doing something. Like, it's a great background film, which I'm not trying to undersell it. I think it's really wonderful. But mm-hmm. if you just want to put something on and turn your brain off and not think about it a lot, <laughs> and it's like daytime, this is this is a wonderful matinee. 
Uh, I mean, we talked about how great the the Diane Lane performance is. And uh, obviously, she was a former child star who successfully tra- transitioned into an adult career. Um, the A Year in Film TV series features a segment about one of the most talked about movies of 1992, which was Poison Ivy, co-written and directed by another female director, uh, Kat Shea. And it starred Drew Barrymore, Sarah Gilbert, Tom Skerritt, and Cheryl Ladd. Before 1992, a lot of people had a different idea of who Drew Barrymore was, both as a person and as a performer. As you can hear in this 1992 Whoopi Goldberg interview for her talk show. That's right. Whoopi Goldberg had a talk show in the 90s. You know, when I was like in my early teens, people just could not accept the fact that I was getting older. You know, they still wanted to, you know, see me eating apple pie, hanging with E.T., you know. It wasn't like that anymore. I was aging and, and growing up, and, right. and people were not accepting of that. And, and now they are. Right. But it took a while. Well, I think, was it Pretty Poison? Poison, poison Ivy, Ivy, yeah. Ivy. Honey, I think they got it now. <laughs> <laughs> poison Ivy, its lesbian kiss scene, as well as a nude photo shoot for Interview Magazine, made people look at and talk about 17-year-old Drew Barrymore in a different way. It was great for Drew Barrymore's career and public profile, but all the notoriety for Poison Ivy overshadowed, in my opinion, a better role and a better movie for Drew Barrymore that came out that same year. It even earned her a Golden Globe nomination for her performance. And that movie is Gun Crazy. Alicia, this is based on a 1950s movie called Gun Crazy, which is two words, whereas this one is Gun Crazy, one word. I Can I just say I hate that they made this one word? Because when you go to search it, like, no one would ever put gun crazy in as one word, but whatever. I guess it's an adjective. Um, yeah, so this, sorry, coming back to what it's based on. There is, you know, a very canonical uh, kind of B-film, film noir called Gun Crazy, directed by Joseph Lewis and starring Peggy Cummins, uh, which is, if you are into that era of film, Film, you you can't do better than than that particular one. And 1992's Gun Crazy is definitely partially based on that. To me, it's more 1967's Bonnie and Clyde, directed by mm-hmm. Arthur Penn, the um, very famous Warren Beatty, uh, Faye Dunaway film that kind of brought about an end to the Hollywood studio system and like censorship in in the classical era. Uh, it has elements of both for sure. But the important thing to note is it's, you know, two two young people in love on a crime spree. And we've seen a lot of these films. This is a film that predates also Natural Born Killers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Natural Born Killers was intended to be, because it's Oliver Stone, a, a thoughtful, if you will, examination of trauma and the effect on uh, these two criminals who are going on this mega crime spree. This is a more thoughtful quiet, disturbing look at what trauma does to people and the and the choices that they make um, and then takes it up into the one of the most disturbing uh, shootout scenes mm-hmm. I think I've seen on film at the end of this thing. It's it's real rough. Which yes. I would expect from a film called Gun Crazy and was yes. pleasantly um, rewarded for, I believe. The, the synopsis write-up of this on IMDb and on a lot of uh, other reviews, they refer to the Drew Barrymore character as a trashy teen who leaves a wanting to be reformed con- convict on like this wild uh, wild ride and she's manipulating him and it's <laughs> mm-hmm. like did we watch the same no. movie cuz that's not the read i have on this I one I mean i you know we're talking so much about our ni- in our 1992 episodes about marketing and i understand why that seems marketable mm-hmm. certainly but it's it's not what actually happens. Her mother has left her. She's I believe sixteen or she's sixteen I think in the film, and she's living with her 
her stepdad or her mother's former boyfriend in a trailer. She is in a sexual relationship with her stepfather, which is abusive. She seeks out a lot of ways of trying to, you know, find love by having sexual um, relationships with teens in her school that don't give a shit about her. Who are upright abusive as well. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's she has a really hard life through a school project. She has to find a pen pal and engage in correspondence with said pen pal. And while all of her other students are like finding, you know, (laughs) kids in other countries, she (laughs) writes to uh, a prisoner, which is, you know, it was a real thing. Obviously, you know, we hear about this a lot, like correspondence at prisons. And she falls in love through letters with um, with one of the prisoners who about to get out and they unite and at first this is prisoners of course played by James LeGrosse and at first he's reformed and kind of doesn't he doesn't actually physically engage with her at all because she's underage and he doesn't want to be around guns but she kind of wins him over in that she has just killed her stepfather in self-defense after he's tried to rape her uh, or possibly actually has raped her and so he is then required to help her kind of hide the body and the crime spree <laughs> goes from there they do get married um it's 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 a road movie they've got their car and they're they're driving they have no money uh she's very naive which you would be as a 16 year old i was surprised by how effective this film was i thought based on how they marketed it and because it's, you know, sort of a stunt to have grown up Drew Barrymore, relatively grown up Drew Barrymore in this film and sexualized, I really was expecting to kind of hate this. Um, and I didn't. I, I actually was impressed by it's a it's a B or a C film, but somehow it's elevated. I don't know why that it's is. It's very similar to gas food lodging in that feel yeah. of like people who have slipped through the cracks that if one little thing had gone a little bit different for them, they would have been okay. Um, this is a very sad movie, but also really action-packed and a lot of fun. Um, mm-hmm. And there's moments where it's, you do get caught up like in Bonnie and Clyde, you get excited while you're along the, on the ride with them because they're having fun possibly for the first time, even though they're committing these horrible crimes. Yeah. And they're snake handlers. And I love the snake yes, handlers. true. That's there the is a snake handling church. <laughs> As someone who is terrified of snakes, I did not like that scene. And I knew I knew what was coming and it, it did happen. And um, just a trigger warning for people who have a huge phobia of snakes the way I do. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't I don't enjoy religion. Yeah. So in some ways, there's a payoff. I will say this is pure speculation. Uh, but as somebody who is very familiar with uh, the films of screenwriter Matthew Bright, I think you can give a lot of the credit to this not being trashy to Tamara Davis. Uh, (laughs) Because Matthew Bright, he came from The Forbidden Zone, the Oingo Boingo movie. He's one of the stars of it and the writer. But he also wrote a film that is quite similar to Gun Crazy called Freeway, uh, which mm-hmm. uh, is very good film. It's, it's it's quite similar in plot. It stars a very young Reese Witherspoon as another trashy girl uh, who's out of control. It's an adaptation of Red Riding Hood that's insane. It is. I mean, it's a great movie. I think it's ridiculous and funny, and it's it's an over the top satire. But Kiefer Sutherland, yes, right? Kiefer Sutherland uh, as a terrible creep. Um, but it is uh, on the wrong side of trash. I think uh, <laughs> I, I, he is not a man who is known for his restraint. Uh, he made tiptoes. 
uh, the film that a lot of people know where featuring Gary Oldman pretending to be a dwarf. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, Freeway, the sequel is called Confessions of a Trick Baby. And oh, uh, it is. Yeah, he's he is not a man who is known for his restraint. So I believe that any of the restraint and nuance, I would probably credit to Tamara Davis. And this is her directorial debut, which I mean, anytime. And we were talking a lot in 1992 about first time directors. And there's some really great examples. You know, anytime you kind of take the film with a grain of salt because it's, it's the first time out. Right. And I I actually would never have known this is someone in their directorial debut. It doesn't feel like that, nor did nor did my new gun. It's kind of impressive. Well, yeah. her experiences, let's talk about Tamara Davis for a second, because yeah. this is a name that some people may know. A lot of people may not. She's directed some of your favorite films if you are a comedy fan. So we're looking at Billy Madison. We're looking at Half-Baked. She did CB4, which is like a, spi- a hip-hop spinal tap. She's very big in the music world. She directed the Mbop music video. Um, she's really known for her music video direction. You, you were probably going to say it, but I just don't want this podcast to go on without mentioning that she directed the Cher and Beavis and Butthead music video for I've Got You, Baby. <laughs> that I, is I was correct. wondering what you were going to choose. I'm like, uh, From a Distance by Bette Midler? <laughs> <laughs> no, the year, the year after this film, she did the Beavis and Butthead video with Cher. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, her, her filmography just for music videos is absolutely mm. ridiculous. So she already had all that on experience and that like gumption and like pushing around pretty big stars like from my understanding when you are coming in to work with a music video star they're not actors so you have to guide them into very specific performances and people who may or may not have an ego about what their own potential on camera is Um, and she's able to get these remarkable music videos that are very memorable Mm -hmm. out of it so I can see her being able to work with already a veteran actress Drew Barrymore who apparently called her and begged for the part when she got the script Mm. and then James the Gross, who, as we said, was on a roll at this point. And then I just want to bring attention to the amount and like the ridiculous amount of male character actors that are in this that are like crazy uh, high end. So we're looking at Jeremy Davies, uh, James Oslin shows up, Billy Drago, Michael Ironside is in this, of course. Like it's wild. Joe Del- yeah, Joe Delisandro. Yes, yes, of course. The- Thank you. Andy Warhol factory and John Waters. And I mean, Ione Skye, as we mentioned, uh, she shows up, Mm -hmm. Michael Ironside. Well, small piece of trivia there. They were both married to Beastie Boys at the time. (laughs) Not Michael Ironside. uh, (laughs) No, 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 Tamara Davis (laughs) and Ione Skye were both married to Beastie Boys at the time. (laughs) That's like the only thing that would make Michael Ironside cooler. (laughs) (laughs) I really, really like him a lot. (laughs) I do too. Big fan. But um, I mean, like this is her debut film, but she's coming with like a Mm. big push behind her, right? Which is why this Mm -hmm. looks as good as it does. And those action sequences are awesome. And she had been writing this, I think, since 1985. Like, this is a long gestating project, for sure. So, you know, when you see those things happen for emerging filmmakers, when they've been working on something for, in this case, like seven years, it's just so nice when it's successful. Because imagine seven years of your life working on a screenplay. Like, I can't, I can't actually wrap my head around that myself. Well, this is an interesting period as well for for Drew Barrymore, because as we said, she really hadn't been doing a lot. People still knew her as this like cute child Mm. actor with the big eyes from this acting dynasty. But Poison Ivy hit, this hit, and all of a sudden people were looking at her in a whole new way. And she'd really started a new kind of career for her. Uh, I will credit uh, my understanding of this phenomena to uh, Keenan Tamblin, who's in uh, season one of our series, uh, that there is a concept of something called Drew Sploitation, that essentially uh, Drew Barrymore at the time was starring in uh, an inordinately large amount of uh, crazy 
straight to video often or indie uh, exploitation films. So stuff like uh, Far From Home, Mortarama, No Place to Hide, uh, The Sketch Artist. Like these are all kind of within these years. She's in in 1993, a famous uh, Amy Fisher adaptation. Uh, and one I, I love uh, called Doppelganger, which she plays herself and her own evil twin. But quite often these are movies that are a little more sexually driven. Like these are movies where you can tell she was pushing herself out of the I'm a kid role. So they were Mm -hmm. often action films or sexy thrillers or just something where she was a key young adult role that was like pushing the boundaries a little more. It seems like this was something she was also implementing herself uh, outside of her publicist. I know she did the interview magazine um, photo shoot, which she appears nude in it with her then fiancé at the time, uh, as well as with a bevy of female models in a swimming pool together. Again, she's 17 years old in these photos. And um, she... Uh, supposedly did it, and as soon as she did it, she called her publicist and was like, oh, by the way, I'm going to be nude on the cover of Inchimim Magazine. Do something about that. So yeah. it's kind of interesting that there that she had, it appears that she had that kind of authority over her own career and her own image at that time. Oh, totally. And you need to also remember that uh, this was uh, around the same time, 1990, I believe, Little Girl Lost was uh, mm-hmm. put out, which is her autobiography mm-hmm. about her uh, addiction issues as a child. Um which was huge. I, I think that that's like she's a very canny uh, businesswoman to make these films, release this book, do all these famous interviews. I, I think she really changed her career. But I also think that often the quality of these films probably hurt her for a while. Uh, from what I can tell, I mean, there has not, I don't think, been a master's thesis written yet on Drew's flotation, uh, but a lot of people... <laughs> I think, I believe Keenan is in the ninth year of his yeah, PhD, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, he should uh, get to it. But a, a lot of people consider the end of this to be kind of the one-two punch of Batman Forever and Scream, which brings her back into uh, the kind of higher budget. She, she was always in stuff, uh, including uh, Tamara Davis's Bad Girls. Uh, the all lady uh, young guns. Oh, that is not Tamara Davis's bad girls. No, <laughs> oh. my friend. That's that's a whole other story. Let me just very quickly because I'm sure we'll talk about it later. Uh, Tamara Davis was fired from that oh. movie because the the uh, production wanted to her to make it sexier, and she was like, "You mm-hmm. understand this is a feminist western, right? Like that's not what this is." And so she got fired, but she got Billy Madison because she got fired from that. They nice. called her out three days later to be like, "Hey, are you busy? We just fired our director. Come hang out with Adam Sandler and his guys." And she got Billy Madison. So good story. Also. Bad Girls is terrible, so she doesn't need to feel bad. And it's not that sexy, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think it ended up even being sexy. What I find really interesting about this film is kind of maybe defined by its release structure. Like, it feels like it's a C film, but it's not, which was very much reflected in, like, it was made to be a direct-to-video, I believe, air on Showcase uh, Showtime. Um, film. Showtime, sorry, the American version. And it did, like, it, but it, when it showed at... Um, at TIFF, it had like a lot of success and people were really buzzing about it at TIFF. And so even after it debuted on Showtime and even after it was, I think, available on home media, it had like a pretty successful theatrical run, which is why Drew Barrymore is nominated for Best Actress in a miniseries or like made for TV mm-hmm. movie. And because it was released that way first before it made 
actually a lot of headway in like the midnight kind of movie market. That's got to uh, be one of those marketing decisions, though, one of those publicity decisions where it's like, you know, Ryan Murphy enters the American Horror Stories in miniseries, yeah. right? Because yeah. it's technically a different cast, well, different story. Uh, yeah, I mean, Gun Crazy was was technically considered a TV movie. It, 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 it's, yeah. yeah, it's weird because it probably played theatrically in Canada, to be fair. But uh, yeah. It did, yeah. And it actually, interestingly, the impact it had went on to do something that at, on Showtime, which I think has also been unfortunately forgotten, where uh, in 1994, there was essentially this revival of American International Pictures properties called Rebel Highway uh, that was produced partially by Deborah Hill. And it's all these directors essentially doing what Tamara Davis did, which was a spin mm-hmm. on Gun Crazy. So there's spins on like Robert Rodriguez, uh, John Milius, uh, Mary Lambert, William Friedkin. They all wow. made these what are essentially their versions of Gun Crazy. Uh, you know, girls mm-hmm. in prison, drag strip girls, jail- jailbreakers. They all kind of did their version of a, a 50s kind of crazy movie. It's very Roger Corman-esque to me mm-hmm. when we're talking about this particular cycle. Like I, fe- I see so much Roger Corman inspiration in, you know, these these independent filmmakers who are making films in the early 90s having probably grown up around Roger Corman films in the 70s, I see that kind of distilled in some Totally, ways. and I think it's, I mean, that's part of what I think the big deal with Poison Ivy was. Cat Shea came from mm-hmm. the Roger Corman school. She Forgot made that, all those yeah. stripped-to-kill films, which I think you can mm. find out and about. Uh, and <laughs> those have some interesting dance, like that's like flash dance for like killer stripper movies, aren't yeah. they? They've got some pretty good dance flash sequences dance, in them. Yeah. Yes, oh yeah, she's very into the dancing. Um, but, uh, but I think that it it produced these people, and I honestly think Gun Crazy is about the same, where they balance this feeling of exploitation and, and this a very sellable movie uh, and mm-hmm. an independent film that is talking about women and, uh, you know, in, in Poison Ivy's case, a bit of queer issues. Uh, and, yeah, it just they just knew a way to balance that, which mm-hmm. was very appealing. Um, and she probably made good money from Showtime, to be fair. It was probably a big sale. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Okay, so obviously I have to go rewatch Poison Ivy again because I haven't seen it in a long time. So <laughs> maybe, maybe I yes. need to go give it a re-evaluation. Uh, but uh, let's take a quick break and uh, maybe I'll just go watch the trailer and I'll come back with some opinions. So when we come back, this star's mother didn't want him to be an actor. However, she accepted her son's success after they sat next to Diana Ross at the premiere of one of the films we're going to talk about next. I mean, I would think I made it too if I scored a seat next to Miss Ross. Find out who that actor is and what the movie is after the break. Hey, listeners, if you're enjoying the podcast, season two of the TV show is coming out December 6th, and you'll be able to see episodes covering 1975, 1986, 1994, and 2000. Not only will you see the faces of Cam, Alicia, and myself, and they're good faces, very expressive, but you're also going to hear from so many more film experts and maybe even some filmmakers talking about the movies you love. And here's where it gets even better. Hollywood Suite is in free preview for the whole month of December, and you can watch both seasons of A Year in Film and great movies from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Don't forget to watch the first season of A Year in Film now and find out how to catch the free preview while it lasts at hollywoodsuite.ca. You know that Hollywood Suite airs great content, and they've got a real treat lined up. December 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on the 2000s channel is the premiere of Valley of Tears, a 10-part HBO Max original drama series. You'll be able to watch the first two episodes back-to-back, 
And then each subsequent episode will air weekly after that on Saturdays. Have raucous Saturday night plans? Don't worry. After the episodes air, they're going to be available on Hollywood Suite On Demand exclusively. Listeners, the trailer alone for Valley of Tears is gorgeous, which makes sense because it's Israel's highest budget TV series ever, and clearly every dollar is on that screen. It follows four soldiers caught in the crossfire of the 1973 Yom Kippur War. I'm excited to watch it, one, because I know nothing about the Yom Kippur War and would like to know more about it, and two, because when people ask me what I'm watching, I'm going to be like, oh, just this amazing HBO Max original 10-part series called Valley of Tears that's airing exclusively on Hollywood Suite in Canada, and then a conversation will be started. Check out hollywoodsuite.ca for more information and to see that awesome trailer. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The following statement may upset you. Black film properties may be to the 90s what the car phone was to the 80s. Every studio executive has to have one. This was written in the New York Times in the summer of 1991, as if black cinema was a novelty and not financially viable, vital to culture, and representative of the voices of large swaths of the population. It was backed up by actor Blair Underwood, who said, The door is only open to the black filmmakers for a short time. The last rush was in the late 60s and early 70s. Hollywood is always into trendy things, and it was trendy to have a black product. But 1991 was a massive year for African-American cinema with hits like Boys in the Hood, Straight Out of Brooklyn, Jungle Fever, and New Jack City. And that lit a trail of green lights for release in 1992. Uh, Cam, you talk a little bit about Black Hollywood movies in the A Year in Film TV series. Uh, can you recap that a little bit here? Just like you say, uh, it was essentially, I think, especially uh, a large part of it was hip-hop culture and Spike Lee and John Singleton, as you say, with Boys in the Hood, kind of reaching beyond popular cinema into critically acclaimed cinema. Um, 
and it caused all, like you say, white executives suddenly were very interested. Uh, so if you look at the films of 1992, uh, mm. three of the top ten have black leads with the Lethal Weapon 3 sister act and the bodyguard. Uh, beyond that, there's a lot of black-led films like uh, Candyman, White, Can- White Men Can't Jump, Mo Money, uh, The Distinguished Gentleman, Grand Canyon, Mississippi Masala. Those are all by non-black directors. But on top of that... Uh, a nice side effect of this, and I think partially due to the fact of actually an independent filmmaker we failed to mention before, mm-hmm. uh, Reginald mm-hmm. Hudland, who made House Party. A lot of people don't know that was an independent film, but it's a film that was made for a super low yeah, budget so that made money. 10 times its budget. So it was one of the most profitable films uh, of all time at the time. Uh, so that actually opened the door to a lot of black filmmakers. So uh, in addition to Leslie Harris, who we talked about in a previous episode, uh, 1992 had new films by Spike Lee, uh, debuts from people like Carl Franklin and Ernest Dickerson, who we'll talk about, uh, another Reginald Hudland movie, a Bill Duke movie. Uh, Bruce W. Smith became one of the first uh, African-American directors to direct an animated feature with Bay Bay's kids. Uh, Kevin Hooks made Passenger 57, always bet on black, as people know. Uh, <laughs> pretty much every major black director, with the exception of Michael Schultz, who was working on TV at the time, and Sidney Poitier, who had retired, uh, made a uh, a movie and and those who weren't making movies like John Singleton hmm. did a Michael Jackson music video. The Hughes brothers did Tupac videos. So it's like pretty much every director you know is there. Well, a lot of people had also just finished putting their movies out, and so then we're working on the next one. So you yeah. have that little bit of yeah. a gap, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's a very interesting time, but at the same time, you look, it's kind of throughout the culture. Like I say, hip hop stuff. Arsenio Hall was kind of the biggest. Uh, talk show around the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was there, a different world. Uh, you have to bring it up. Unfortunately, the Cosby show was huge. Uh, Deaf Comedy Jam started. I think at this point in 92, probably I, as a very small person, was watching uh, the Midnight at the Apollo. Oh, yeah. sure. I think that was my first introduction to like actual and I black mean, culture. Um, there's a very interesting uh, thing like culturally that comes up a lot uh, in like kind of TV cultural criticism uh, with the show Blossom because uh, in the first episode mm-hmm. of Blossom Blossom's mother is dead I believe uh, and she dreams up a mother and her mother is Claire Huxtable from the Cosby show. Uh, she did. A, she, she pretended <laughs> to be like That's a homemaker. Insane. So yeah just to think that at the time the image of a perfect mother was was some a black woman. It was very mm-hmm. interesting, even for a white person. Um, so yeah, it, it's interesting. And as you say, unfortunately, as you can see, uh, it disappeared very quickly. By about 1994, the the black directors were mostly gone. Uh, and essentially, if there was a black led film. It was directed by a white person. Oh, man. Well, Mm. you know, you mentioned a lot about hip-hop culture, and fortunately this is something that continues to be in the mainstream. It's been a thing ever since it popped up, which is fantastic. And it makes sense that rock stars have always wanted to make the transition to movie stars, so why wouldn't hip-hop and rap stars? Uh, Because Ice Cube and Ice-T both made names for themselves in the 80s as rappers, uh, both independently and with groups like, of course, NWA. And both are now prolific actors. Ice-T has over 100 credits on IMDb, and Ice Cube has over 90. But in 1991, both were 
were just starting out on their thespian exploits, if you will. Uh, <laughs> Ice Cube had appeared in Boys in the Hood, and Ice-T had appeared in both Breakin' and Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo, with possibly the first <laughs> rap appearance on film. Uh, that's because of his involvement with the famous Radiotron Youth Center, and uh, I'm sure that's going to come up in a year in film at some point because those stories are just fascinating. And uh, he was also in uh, New Jack City and a thriller called Ricochet. And then executives had the brilliant idea of putting the two rappers together in a thriller, playing antagonistic gang members hunting down Bill Paxton and William Sadler in an abandoned building as they search for stolen gold in a script that was written in 1977 by a writing team we've talked about before. And that's just the setup for this whole bananas story. Uh, Cam, what happened to Trespass? Uh, Well, uh, what happened to (laughs) Trespass was a little something we call the L.A. riots. Um, yeah, uh, Trespass was originally a film called Looters, as you say, by uh, Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis, uh, pre-Back to the Future days uh, from 1977, as you say. Uh, it's it's meant to be, uh, uh, both them and director Walter Hill kind of call it like a boys' adventure movie, like a Treasure of Sierra Madre sort of uh, goofy movie. Um, it actually reminds me, I always bring Zemeckis back to uh, Tales from the Crypt. It's kind of like a crime Tales from the Crypt oh, movie yeah. where nobody is good and it's like a morality play, but but an action Weirdly, movie, the person who's meant to be the moral compass in this is uh, Bill Paxton, which uh, you yeah. always have something oh, weird with your film when he is like the, the voice <laughs> of reason. <laughs> yeah. And he's he's as nervous as like aliens and near dark and oh, yeah. all of his characters oh, yeah. where he's just like, oh God, oh God, like the whole film. Yeah. Typical Bill Paxton who So anyway, this movie was coming out called Looters. Uh, it, it featured uh, Ice-T, who at the time was in an incredible controversy uh, about the song Cop Killer. You know, it was just on everybody's lips. So the movie got shelved. It was supposed to be a summer release. It's a very summery movie. Uh, It got shelved till Christmas, (laughs) oddly. Uh, That was the chosen time. It got its title changed to Trespass, which unfortunately really broke Walter Hill's heart, even though pretty much everyone agrees, uh, including Ice-T and Ice-Cube, like, you can't call it looters. Yeah, this is a better title for sure. Because of the prolific looting in uh, in the L.A. riots. Should be said, obviously, in 2020, the L.A. riots looked quite different. It was the reaction to the Rodney King verdict. It was also a reaction, a lot of people uh, forget, it was a reaction uh, as well to... uh, Latasha Harlins, who is a young girl who was shot to death while shoplifting, uh, and the shooter got no prison time. Yeah, it essentially was a protest that turned into kind of a six-day uh, looting and property destruction. Personally, this is just my personal bugbear. I think that is what freaked out a lot of white executives uh, to supporting black culture because it was so close to their home and what have you and they kind of unfortunately turned against people but uh it actually it, it's hard to tell whether the bad the change in date hurt this movie or what the movie was very interested and walter hill was very interested in using hip-hop culture as you say it's an interesting script because it's credited to zemeckis and gale i think to help sell it but for the most part walter mm-hmm. hill says that Almost all the dialogue that Ice-T and Ice Cube said is rewritten by them. Which makes uh, sense because it sounds yeah. authentic and it, none oh, of it yeah. feels put on. And especially yeah. for something written in 1977, you'd be dealing with a lot more sort of black exploitation language, which they don't oh, do. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, even uh, I can't I think it's uh, Cube says like it was so 
corny in 70s. I believe it would they were white gangsters in the script. <laughs> but uh, he's like, it, the dialogue was unsayable <laughs> in a modern context because it was just nuts yeah. to read. Well, I mean, to come back to, if you want like a reference to Walter Hill, because this isn't his first film mm-hmm. about gangs, he's probably most well known for Warriors. Yes! Think it. Think about some of the dialogue in Warriors, yeah. such as David Patrick Kelly with bottles on his fingers, going. Yeah. Well, even like, screaming. That's Walter Can Hill. Can you <laughs> like, dig yeah, it? He's, like, yeah, my favorite I just part. picture like I picture Ice T and Ice Cube being like, "Oh yeah, yeah. hell no!" Uh, but I also think Walter <laughs> Hill knew, like, I don't know what I'm doing, uh, even though he was but relatively t- young at the time. <laughs> but Ice T was also a really big fan of Walter Hill oh, yeah, and yeah. Walter Hill's works. Well, uh, if you think, yeah, director. yeah, no, Ice T. Uh, both of them say that they love the Warriors, uh, and, and yeah, if you. You think they like Ice T was coming up as you say with Break In and like Wild Style is kind of the same time as the Warriors, which is pro- the mm-hmm. other probable first because Fab Five Freddy is technically in it uh, first hip hop appearance. But yeah, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's an interesting one. And, and the other thing that Walter Hill was very interested in, which you see visually, which actually I think is an interesting way that it shows kind of the hip-hop visual style is he was very interested in in this character having a video camera filming everything because he Mm -hmm. said he'd read Mm -hmm. that sometimes gangsters do that like they film their own exploits uh so it cuts between this kind of handy cam footage whenever especially cube and ice t are around did you find that effective because i'm I'm yeah it was weird but it was interesting and i do think that it connects a lot with the visual style of especially music videos of the time. Um, it had also mm-hmm, never mm-hmm. been done before. Yeah. And it's another mm-hmm. reason why it got kiboshed in the wake of uh, the Rodney King incident was because that, of course, was caught on camera. And this is the first yeah. time you were really mm-hmm. seeing cameras in prolific use. I, I so would agree filmically. Way. I'm not sure. And actually, even more than filmically, story-wise, I'm not sure it makes <laughs> a hell of a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. I think it's it stuck out a little bit for me and it took me a bit out of the action and the story. But then upon reviewing why it'd be in there, it does make sense yeah. to me now. But I, I'm not sure for viewers who are going to watch this film, as I think we're all saying they should, because it's really interesting. Uh, it's really fun, oh, too. Yeah. It's like just a so really, much fun. really great action film. Uh, it is a, it's a, it's odd when you switch these like black and white, like you get the re- the red recording dot in the corner. Uh, it's kind of a gimmick. It's a little bit gimmicky, but at least it's rooted in something mm-hmm. real that Walter Hill wanted to bring to the story. So I do appreciate that. To connect that, like what the reality is, because Walter Hill talks a lot that, I mean, this is a movie about guys who are kind of trying to find hidden gold in a building (laughs) and they run across a gang. Yeah, It's like, it's, it's pretty crazy. Like, like giant golden crosses. But the interesting thing is because of the LA rides and because of all of this and Walter Hill kind of goes out of his way to say like a very interesting and nuanced talk about film actually when you read his interviews because he says that you know this is a film about white guys versus black guys but it did not have that intention but he kind of says like you can't like it's it's not even your job to have the intention he's like it doesn't matter if you have an intention or not a film with that level with any level of like race becomes political it's very interesting because he's like there there was Mm -hmm. no political intention but obviously it's a political film because you can't avoid it we should probably say like what the plot is, because I feel like for people who haven't seen it mm-hmm. or looked it up, like the plot 
is kind of fascinating because it's not what you would think it would be when we're talking about gangs and that kind of thing. Two very stupid white people <laughs> deeply played by William Sadler, uh, who, you know, I, I spend some time staring at his face. I was like, I know I've seen him in other films. Where where am I? Where who do I know him from? And he's he's um, the Grim Reaper or death in uh, Bill and Ted's bogus journey, bogus journey, bogus. Sorry, bogus. Yes, you're right. Sorry. And then Bill Paxton, who who we all love. And they they're firefighters who find out that. And I don't I don't want to say how, but they find out in another city there is a factory where looted gold Christian reliquary from Greece, ancient Greece, has been hidden. It's worth millions of dollars. And they travel to, I think it's supposed to be Memphis. It's St. Louis. I believe they're going Saint to St. Louis. Louis. Okay. Yeah. It's filmed in Memphis, but it's St. Louis. Yeah. And uh, they, you know, they break into this abandoned factory to find the gold, not realizing that it's kind of the territory of this gang, uh, whose leader is, of course, Ice-T. And the gang itself is in a conflict with another gang. And basically what starts, what happens is there's a, a whole standoff and a shootout that goes on for almost two hours between, and the gang don't, don't really realize until throughout the, like later in the film that the, they're like, why are these two idiots in this <laughs> building? Like, what are they looking for? What is the point? There is... My favorite character is one of the kind of homeless men who are squatting in the factory. It's his home. And uh, the William Sadler and Bill Paxton's character kind of kidnap him and like tie him up. And they're like, it's it's interesting because he ends up being such an important part of the film. And it could have been a throwaway character. Uh, and you just sort of watch this assault happen, this barrage of like trying to get out of the building with the gold. They're not sure where the gold is at one point. Then the gang, you know, trying to stop them. It's it's uh, it's quite the feat. It really is the treasure of Sierra Madre. Or I, I was reminded of The Assaults on Precinct mm-hmm. 13, mm-hmm. which is a, another 70s film by John Carpenter. Um, there's that kind of sense of just like, it, it really is, um, it's a heist film, but then it's also sort of a marauders film. Yeah. It's super fun. Uh, something I want to just bring us back to is the the technology for a minute, because the drug dealers have cell phones and are able to call mm-hmm. for backup and and move the plot forward there. But the firefighters don't. And if this mm-hmm. movie was made now, they'd have to explain why they yeah. don't have phones and it would totally ruin the plot. I did a bit of poking around. It looks like this is one of the early examples of when they were used to move the plot forward mm-hmm. as opposed to just being status symbols like in uh, like in Wall Street. Right. Um, and Reservoir Dogs <laughs> also used cell phones the same mm-hmm. year. So this is a big turning point for cell phones hmm. being used in plots. Motorola yeah, stocks gonna, probably went I was, <laughs> was going to say the firefighters have a CB radio, though. <laughs> That's yes, true. They do the CB. It eventually gets shot out by, I believe, yeah, Ice Cube, yeah. but uh, they did have a CB radio at one point. And they do something really smart with the plot, too, of pitting Ice T and Ice Cube against yeah. each other mm-hmm. as well. So ice, you get even more ice goals. Yeah. Yeah, ice, and, yeah. The and ice it's is very Cuban interesting. Uh, yes. Walter Hill, actually, because, I mean, it, it's. You see, it was sold as like a hip hop movie. They are, and you would never really have, under other circumstances, either Bill Paxton or William Sadler on a movie poster. They are not really people who sell a film. Mm-hmm. Like a Twister sells Twister, not Bill Paxton. Uh, sorry, yeah. Bill. Uh, but um, uh, it's really sold on Ice Cube and Ice T. But Walter Hill really chose them as actors. He like said that he wanted kind of gangstery guys, and Ice Cube was in Boys in the Hood, and Ice T was in New Jack City, and they're great actors. Like, yeah, and they're great actors. Yeah. And the, there's a very funny interview where he goes, "More of a rhythm and blues man myself." <laughs> like, he said he was pretty much unfamiliar with their hip hop careers, um, but oh, happy that they that studios were so excited for the two guys. Well, I mean, speaking of the hip hop careers, like you kind of you alluded to this earlier, Cam, but you know that cop killer, like that. 
that track that does get released in 1982 on debut album self-titled yeah. Body Count. His, his heavy uh, metal band. Yeah, it's a heavy metal. That's the thing is when I was looking at this, I thought, oh, this is obviously going to be a rap song. It's it's uh, no. it's not. It's heavy metal. I mean, this is one of the biggest kind of moments in black culture and free speech and presidency speaking out against rap culture like it's it really made tidal waves well, and you tipper had, gore in her whole like mm, attack on this right yeah like between george bush senior uh dan quayle and tipper gore there were like multiple press conferences directly speaking to this track um police police squads were obviously boycotting the album and wouldn't uh, arrive to any record store that called them if the store was selling this mm. album so like they would say that they had to like take it off the shelves or they wouldn't like respond to emergency calls if you were like working at an HMV or a Sunrise Records, which is crazy. It led to major boycotts against Time Warner Music. Like this album was on a huge record label. The combined law enforcement associations of Texas today called for a halt to sales of the album, saying Ice-T may have freedom of expression, but recording company Warner Brothers has a social responsibility. Send these people a message that this is not going to be acceptable for a company as large as Time Warner and Warner Brothers. And eventually the track was pulled. And so this, this it's a, I'm sure it's a very collectible yeah. thing to find the original with the, yeah. the cop killer track on it. But it's a major moment in like freedom of speech. And there's a quote, I just, I'm going to read something that Ice-T's response I think is so pertinent. Uh, he said, I'm singing in the first person as a character who is fed up with police brutality. I ain't never killed no cop. I felt like it a lot of times, but I never did it. If you believe that I'm a cop killer, then you believe David Bowie is an astronaut. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, a very, <laughs> a very good yeah. quote. I think it's also very important to say that Ice-T was uh, not much of a murderer, but his actual <laughs> profession is the infinitely cooler jewel thief. <laughs> he, he was a pimp and a jewel what? thief primarily, uh, which is so much cooler. Uh, <laughs> you don't need to pretend that you murdered a cop if you're a jewel thief. I mean, yeah, well, jewel thief is also less horrifying, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, there's also, a reason why he's the best part of Law Order SVU. Yes. <laughs> it's also very worth uh, looking up that if anyone hasn't, to shame Time Warner, uh, Charlton Heston read the mm-hmm. lyrics aloud <laughs> and mm-hmm. slightly rapped a uh, cop killer which is hilarious. Let me uh, give you a sample of some of the uh, lyrics that had some of the older ladies among the stockholders white with dismay, language they had never heard before. I got my 12-gauge sawed off. I got my headlights turned off. I'm about to bust some shots off. I'm about to dust some cops off. Like I think I could be wrong, but like on the floor of the Supreme Court or something. Uh, like it was that. it was at a stockholder meeting for a time war. Uh, okay, uh, yes, but it looks like it absolutely looks like the Supreme Court because he's covered in American flags. <laughs> and uh, another good like cultural thing is the the National Association of African American Police Officers actually said. Hey, uh, I would much rather that somebody write a song about their feelings than kill a cop. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, is yeah. like, <laughs> Weird, oh yeah, eh? yeah. In fact, that's great, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. people should get their frustrations out in art and but not I can only, murder. I can only imagine how much of Trespass's release would have been tied to the publicity and yeah. the like press around this. This I don't want to say it's an incident. I'm not sure what the word is for it, but this like milestone watershed yeah. moment in freedom of speech as applied to hip-hop culture. Yeah, and interestingly, Time Warner, for the most part, actually did back him. Like you say, the track was pulled, uh, Ice-T's choice 
to pull it. And it was also pulled in a weird way where it was pulled, but the uh, record stores could offer the single for free. Yeah, they were giving, um, yeah, they could sell it on CD um, yeah. for free. And it's interesting because this is a film that's released by Universal. I'd be fascinated what would have happened if this was a Warner Brothers um, yeah. film, knowing how Time Warner is linked. But I mean, Universal has their own label at this point, too. So I'm sure they were just like, in some ways, hoping to reap the benefits of oh, like, Time Warner yeah. being under fire. But they're like, yeah. we made the film, but thank God we yeah. didn't release the song. And, and at, for the time, Warner's position was, it's fine, which is actually yeah. surprising. Yeah. He ended up parting ways with him because he said when he started his next, he he felt absolutely supported throughout the Cop Killer thing. But when he said when he started his next record, it was a little obvious how nervous they were. Well, uh, and I he get said, it. For, yeah, when <laughs> he said from then on, actually, he's like not even mad at them. He says essentially from then on, he understood that he couldn't work for a record label that had a larger corporation to answer to because he's like you mm-hmm. just can't you can't mm-hmm. create art if if you have to answer to a massive mega corporation that is an, a sad and important lesson that we yeah. will all have to learn in some ice tea is wise <laughs> well there's something interesting too about uh, these hip hop movies are now legitimizing in the mainstream these actor these mm. uh, these hip hop artists as actors yeah. and softening them as well like Ice Cube would go on to be in Daddy Daycare oh yeah and so and you have the same thing now where like Ice T is is everything Snoop Dogg. I mean Snoop Dogg hangs out with Martha Stewart and everyone's like, oh, yeah. yeah. If, so, I, if I find out a film has a Snoop Dogg, <laughs> sorry, Snoop Dogg cameo or role, especially like Beach Bum, I will possibly watch it five to seven times. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I mean, there's, Dogg, I get very excited. There's a very fascinating uh, an argument Ice T even made at the time because I believe it's in New Jack City. He plays a cop, and he's mm-hmm. like, if I actually thought about killing cops, would I play a cop? And yeah. nowadays, he said people still bring up Cop Killer to me, and I go. I have been on Law and Order for twenty years. <laughs> what are you talking there, about? There's a full stand-up act by John Mulaney on how Ice T is on Law and Order. Yeah, SVU. and he's like, just like, he he's like, entrenched. if you think I believed like in Cop Killer, why would I constantly play a cop? Oh my God, I love it. Well, I mean, we're talking about people who were like already fairly established in their prime, but our next movie actually helped to launch the career of a young actor and rapper and hip hop artist who would then become one of the most iconic human beings in this realm, mostly, unfortunately, because of his early death. In 1992, we got Juice, which was the feature film debut of Tupac Shakur before he released his first solo album. We're not going to count his appearance with the Digital underground in the infamous Nothing But Trouble, Don't At Me. Uh, it is also the feature debut of the fabulous Omar Epps, whom mm-hmm. I adore, and mm-hmm. the directorial debut of Ernest Dickerson, who we discussed earlier. Alicia, this is a film noir, as well as Cam pointed out, being a slasher film that <laughs> takes place in a uh, a hip-hop sort of environment and really introduced people to the hip-hop movie. It has mm-hmm. so many firsts in it. Uh, what did you think of this one? I was blown away. It's amazing. I, I mean, I have to admit, I was I expected to be blown away. This film is, I'm, I'm regretful that I didn't grow up with it. I didn't see it um, prior to this, but like it has a reputation that is very, very steadfast. Like I think I think I, I I don't think anyone's ever said something bad about juice, which is yeah. interesting. So I I I loved it. It it does touch on those genres that you're 
speaking of, which I think I found very surprising, um, especially the slasher angle, there is, um, I mean, it's not a spoiler, Tupac Shakur's character in this, Bishop, is the villain. And there are moments even in the cinematography, which makes sense because Ernest Dickerson, the director, is Spike Lee's cinematographer. So this is a director who knows his cinemagraphic uh, tricks. There are scenes where it's almost shot to make it seem like Tupac Shakur is Michael Myers. And the thing is, is it's so scary. His per- And it's scary mostly because his performance is epic. As He's in, an intense dude. Oh, my God. But as and the, the camera loves him. He's so beautiful yeah. on screen. My God. Um, and he's he's very young. Like, obviously, he died very young. He's not much older than this when he died, unfortunately. But this really is him in his early 20s. Like, he's he's very baby faced. But if we're going to talk about baby faced. Um, oh, my God. Omar Epps in his <laughs> in his screen debut. I believe he's 17 years old, which is unbelievable to me. Uh, His performance is incredible. I completely understand why he became a star and kind of at the forefront of uh, Black excellence in acting after this. This film is, it takes place uh, in Harlem. It really is about a group of young friends kind of headed by Omar Epps, who is an aspiring DJ. Uh, And so there's a DJ contest, which is held by Queen Latifah. Yes, who I almost didn't recognize. She's so young. She's very young. She comes up and the minute she starts talking, I'm like, oh, that's Queen Latifah. And she's just such a badass. Yeah, she just like shoots out of a gun and it's just like, there she is. She's Queen Latifah. Like there's no development or like developing the persona. Like it's just her and it's it's truly wonderful. You know, Omar Epps is an aspiring DJ, so he's going to be part of this contest. In the background of all of this is Tupac Shakur's character is very invested in, and I know I'm not using the right phrases here, and you can, I, I welcome people adding at me. I am very white. Um, but there's people trying trying to accrue what is called juice, which is like street cred, essentially. Um, it's it's power. It's, uh, it's, it's essentially like looming threat. And so Tupac Shakur's character Bishop kind of takes it upon himself to rob um, a convenience store to acquire juice. Not just like the not the juice juice, but like <laughs> metaphorically juice. And it goes very wrong. Um, and Omar Epps, you know, his friends are along for the ride just to like kind of rob someone and end up killing um, the convenience store owner. And you see the fallout from that. And it's really about interpersonal relationships and how power can fuck that up and how the reality of how young black men are conditioned to be in a life of crime will destroy your soul um, while also being a horror film and then also having really great DJ battles, which I had never seen on screen because before. Because it's never happened on yeah, screen before. Yeah, it's pretty much one of the first DJ battles. Yeah. One of the, one of the films, there's a running theme throughout this. It's interesting because they're, they're all sitting around a living room, the, the kids, and they're, I say kids, they're like 16 or 17-year-old men, but uh, they're watching James Cagney in White Heat, which is a 1930s prison film. Might be early 40s, actually. But uh, I love that Ernest Dickerson puts that in there, that metaphor, because you see it kind of in, like, with Scarface comes up a lot in Mm. in rap films. Um, And it's so funny. It's interesting to me that they have white heat. And uh, it kind of runs, it's a running theme throughout the film is that idea of, you know, crime and imprisonment and being young and, and just knowing that that is your, that is the life you have ahead of you because it's been prescribed to you. By racism. When Ernest Dickerson was working on this film, he consulted a lot with, I believe it's his cousins um, mm-hmm. who lived in Harlem. And some of the anecdotes that you know his cousin would tell him do a kind of pepper the film. So there is an authenticity there um, that I think 
is really rare. You also have, if we're talking about, you know, kind of on-screen debuts of very important emerging musicians, you also have Cindy Heron yes. is in this. Yeah, as Yolanda. And Yolanda is an older woman who is either married or recently divorced who's having an affair with Omar Epps' 17-year-old high school student character. Uh, and she's, if you don't know who Cindy Heron is, she's part of En Vogue. Tupac Shakur hadn't quite yet made billboards yet, but in Vogue hat, like they would go on mm-hmm. to sell 20 million records and be one of the top selling uh, all girl groups of all time. So it's such a great role for her. She's so good. She would go on to do a number of other films and television projects, but I do love seeing her in this. Um, she's kind of unrecognizable. Like it's very away from her in Vogue mm-hmm. uh, persona, which like if you were in any looking at any media from 1991 or 1992 covers of 17 magazine, anything like in Vogue was everywhere. Like, I was really young, like eight, but I remember In Vogue. I remember wanting the tape. Like, it was really cataclysmic to just culture. So it's interesting to me that Cindy Heron, at this time and point, was a bigger get than Tupac Shakur, who wasn't even invited to audition for this film, just <laughs> yeah. went yeah. with his friends who were auditioning and blew everyone away and got the role. I really love the way that uh, Ernest Dickerson tells the story. We were trying to find the right bishop, and it was it was hard. Then we started looking at rappers, too. So one day, Tretch came in to read. And Tretch comes in, he's got his friend with him. Asked his friend, okay, just kind of like sit in the back, you know, and whatnot. And, uh, and Tretch read, and, you know, I think he was reading for the role of Q. Did a pretty good job. We said, okay, thanks a lot. And going out, we looked at his friend and said, what about you? He says, me? He said, yeah. You want to read? I said, yeah, sure. Why not? What's your name? Uh, Tupac. After the audition, I said, oh, very nice. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. Do we have a way of getting in contact with you? He said, yeah. I said, okay, thanks. He walks out the door. Please close the door. Close the door. We said, Yeah, it's pretty fascinating if you want to say, like, like number one, you're like, wow, Tupac's so good. And to know how good he is, uh, Ernest Dickerson, he wanted all rappers all of the leads to be rappers. He said that they auditioned 40 rappers. Tupac Mm -hmm. came uh, with uh, Treach from Naughty by Nature, Mm -hmm. who was auditioning uh, as one of the 40 rappers. And of the 40 rappers they auditioned, only Tupac was good enough. They said that he was the only one who could act as well as they wanted. At that point, writing his debut album, Mm -hmm. right? I think, Cam, you told me he... I think Dickerson had said this in an interview that you, in between takes, you could see him in a notebook, writing yeah. down lyrics for what would become the album that would make him a, a monumental star. Totally, yeah. He, Omar Epps says that, yeah, like a lot of Tupacalypse now was mm-hmm. uh, written. And, and Omar Epps is like, I looked at his notebook and it's this song and this song. <laughs> like, the interesting thing also is you, all of these actors kind of talk about, um, there's a great, if you are good with the Wayback Machine, there is a great oral history <laughs> that MySpace put together, wow. uh, but you have to dig it out of the depths. Uh, and it's very interesting where people are just like, uh, like Omar Epps is like, I've kind of met Kanye West once and they're the same where it's like somebody Mm. an interesting thing as well as they were talking about like at the time um beef in rap didn't really happen like because rap was still trying to get its hold on mainstream culture so they said that actually rappers were very supportive of each other and that's kind Mm -hmm. of why treach brought along tupac they said that tupac is one of the first people they ever met who talked shit like essentially they were like he's one of the first people that's like i'm the greatest and at first you're like what but they're like even without his success eventually you're like yeah 
you're the greatest. Yeah. <laughs> like, they all kind of felt it. You watch interviews with him, and uh, they were very, very smart and media savvy in the marketing of this film, uh, going directly to interviews on MTV and MTV Yo Raps and, and all that. Mm. Very smart. Um, and you watch these interviews with Tupac Shakur, who, again, had not yet released an album and mm. was like, I'm the star of this movie. These other guys, whatever. But me, I'm the star. And you're just like... Yeah, yeah, of course you are. And you you, you kind of get drawn to it. There's a, an old uh, picture of all these like starlets of like 1949 or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at all these women and your your eye automatically goes to this one girl. And it's freaking Marilyn Monroe. Everybody yeah. else, you're like, no, but you're like, you just kind of hone in. It's the yeah. same thing with Tupac. You're just like, boop, you. Yeah. Yeah, it's like to- divine, divine intervention. Like there's just mm-hmm. something. This must be like what? When you would meet, you know, when the saints were alive before they were saints, it must be like what that aura was. Yes, of, uh... extreme charisma. And you're right, Becky. It's definitely worth looking up uh, the episodes of Yo MTV Raps because they had Fab Five Freddy is in the movie who hosted Yo MTV Raps at the time. Mm-hmm. And so they did a very long like on the set uh, interview. And there's a lot of wonderful clips of all of the guys. And uh, yeah, but Tupac, again, it's just a charisma that is undeniable. It's a film noir. Like, Ernest Dickerson mm-hmm. is very influenced by old film noirs. It originally had an ending that was based on, like, 1940s films where <laughs> Tupac mm-hmm. was like, I don't want to go to jail, and killed himself. Oh, Jumps uh, off. He, he, yeah, he lets go of Omar yeah. Epps' hand uh, and they're, like, over did not like that, so they changed it. Yeah. But uh, but also, it's like, if to bring it back to kind of uh, earlier Hollywood, this project was first developed because Richard Donner, his production company, was looking to remake Walter Hill's The Warriors, and they just I wanted... Idea. an urban like actiony movie huh. uh, so it was it's interesting because it has this kind of cultural development and Ernest Dickerson says his like most proud moment is he saw a, a thing about two young men who'd shot each other and the the in, the TV interviewer said oh well, how could this happen to a young person and they're like watch the movie juice yeah <laughs> and he's <laughs> like oh uh, perfect yeah. I've done it uh, the Richard Donner version, which we, he was also developing with Lauren Schuler, who we discussed earlier in our Mr. Mom episode, there was a, an idea that this was going to be a comedy at one point, like mm-hmm. a black comedy, and they were going to totally change it. And then when uh, Ernest R. Dickerson got the rights back, they were like, yeah, yeah, no, that's not what we're making at all. Uh, it ended up his partner, Peter Frankfurt, did it. Uh, but yeah, and it's it's a movie that made its money back crazily because they only made it for three million dollars well this is a uh, home so, movie like success as well i'm sure like yeah, the people but even in theaters i think it was a f- the third most profitable movie of the year well let's talk about theaters for a second here because number one there was a huge controversy over the poster where they actually uh for the first for the first time ever the media decided to misquote a black person and edit edit their <laughs> uh, uh edit the statements they were making about appearing with a gun on the poster which was very controversial uh even though there were a number of films beforehand that featured White actors holding guns, no problem there, but a young black actor holding a gun, not happening, far too aggressive. And the other thing that they were really concerned about is that um, outside of screenings of New Jack City and Boys in the Hood, there were there was gun violence. There was some incidents of people being shot. And so a lot of production was like, hey, should we put uh, extra security outside of, of these theaters? And that both was a huge draw for a lot of kids being like, we're seeing something dangerous, but also like... Really? Uh, the article I got that in, by the way, made sure to point out that there was a shootout inside the screening of Godfather 3 in Jersey yeah. at one point. So, Dear Lord. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a weird, it is a, definitely a weird situation. And interesting, like one of the first times Jack Valenti was called out for being racist with the MPAA because they were really the ones that made them remove mm-hmm. the gun from the poster. 
And yeah, like they say, uh, Ernest Dickerson, he, he can recall years later. He's like, uh, there was a gun on the poster. The big one is Cuffs, which is very similar with Christian Slater. He had a gun. Uh, the Last Boy Scout had a gun that had a black I'm, man I'm holding sure a gun. My new gun must have had a oh, gun. Oh, sure. Well, the one, the one that pisses Ernest Dickerson off the most is Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. Because oh, yeah. he's like, that yeah. has a gun pointed at you. That's a Stel Getty. But, right? but he's like, it's the difference between he's like, Tupac is holding a gun up close to his chest and a Stel Getty yeah. is pointing the gun yeah. at you. Yeah. So it's 100%. And actually, no, Omar Epps has a great quote about racism where and it's about generally his like feeling on Hollywood and how they were treating the trend of black actors and his thing is like they treated black men like they were violent but he's like to this day if you see a group of white men walking down the street with baseball bats and a group of black men walking down the street with baseball bats which do you think is a baseball team (laughs) which is uh, a pretty good quote where he's like even your reality of fearing black men is not real that's Mm -hmm. made up He's like, mm-hmm. you are, you, a mob of white men with baseball bats is scarier, and everyone knows that, which is, uh, yeah, uh, a I, pretty I hope, good quote. I hope in 2020, I think with things in the news, we do know that. Like, yeah. I hope people realize that. <laughs> like, I feel like in 1992 with the L.A. riots and sure, but like, how do we not accept that today? Like, clearly, I'm terrified of white men walking down a sidewalk with baseball bats, especially if I'm in the United States. I do just want to end with one more quick little piece of trivia that I love, is that uh, Ernest R. Dickinson uh, got his mother her SAG card. Uh, She always wanted to be in a movie, (laughs) and she had just recently retired from being a librarian. And uh, so he was like, let me get you some health insurance, and I'll get you your SAG card. So she is the woman who sells the gun to Q in the film, which I absolutely (laughs) love. So I I love that, too, because it's actually a pretty meaty role yeah. and it's such a strange role to cast your own mother in <laughs> that or i'll have what she's having right it's the same thing yes <laughs> all right i think we're that's just about everything for this episode so once again thank you so much cameron maitland always a pleasure thank you uh make sure to download uh Tupocalypse now and uh cop killer <laughs> <laughs> thank you alicia thanks becky this one was fun Wasn't it, though? Oh, man. So uh, if you're having fun, you can join us again in two weeks as we look at two movies that were released at the same time about the same subject, dueling for attention. Both went down hard at the box office, but one had quite possibly the sweatiest Gerard Depardieu performance in his whole career. Find out more about the whole fiasco when we come back in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. Uncut and commercial free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time. Nobody likes the records that you play, all right? It's just completely whack. Face it. Face it. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.